Welcome to the Talks on Law California MCLA podcast, interviews with leading attorneys, professors, and judges on important and thought-provoking legal topics. And now for the interview. I don't know how we would design a standard for scientific evidence that is compatible with the role of zealous advocacy in the courtroom because the zealous advocate is going to intelligently define the relevant set of experts for whom this technology is valid and useful and helpful. And the the opposing side will say, this is not the relevant set of experts at all. It's this set of people over who say no, right? So ultimately a judge is kind of adjudicating a battle of the experts. Some techniques are better than others at giving us known error rates. Cutting edge techniques, which may still nevertheless be reliable, may not have and may never have knowable error rates. And that is kind of the nature of scientific evidence, especially when you start to move towards evidence of real world behavior. Interesting. Is that because you can't put it into a lab setting? It's not because you can't put it into a lab setting. It's because to get the real world error rates, we would need massive epidemiological studies of how people behave in the real world. For example, specific to the issue of memory detection, we don't have a very good understanding of how often people make memory errors in their daily lives. We have some understanding, but we don't have a widespread epidemiological study. And it might, in fact, be impossible to do that, because in order to do that, we would have to have vast numbers of subjects where video cameras around their necks, which is done in some memory research, to get the ground truth of what happened. And then we would have to have those subjects recount their narrative of their life at many different points throughout their life. And we'd have to check them. That, that's not research that can happen. But we know from the best available memory research, we know that memory errors are incredibly common. I mean, you and all the other viewers here have probably had these experiences, deja vu being the most prominent one. Deja vu is an experience of having the subjective experience that you have experienced something before when you definitely haven't. I mean, unless we live in the matrix, right? We do know that people's memories change even when they're not, there's no nefarious purpose for that. Memory is not a video camera. It's a constantly reconstructive process. And our best current research on memory retrieval and reconsolidation shows us that down at the cellular level of how memories are encoded, each time we reactivate a memory, we make it subject to change. I was reading about this. I found this so disturbing. It was what you're saying is in a sense, the more you think about a memory, the less confidence you should have in that memory because you may be tweaking it each time. I think that's true and supported by the research. I also think that reflective and serious people might understand that that's true in their life and that people may be able to experience this if they have been a good diary keeper or they were a good diary keeper some, some number of years ago. And if they were asked to spontaneously recall an event without looking at their diary recollection and compared their contemporaneous recollection with the recollection from 10 or 15 years ago, there will inevitably be, I would wager, inconsistencies. I'm not sure whether this was This American Life or Radio Lab, so I apologize. I'm a fan of both shows, but I really enjoyed this one episode where they 
they looked at what they thought was a clear example where people's memories were locked in, which was what were you doing on September 11th? And people were so crystal in their minds. And then they went back and looked and compared against others with contemporaneous experiences and the memories were incredibly inconsistent. There's also an incredible Atlantic article also about the events of September 11th, particularly about one family who tragically lost their young adult son and parents' reactions and then his fiance's reaction. And there was someone of his belongings that was at issue with who gave it to who when. And we read all three of these different people's retellings of this unbelievably salient and highly traumatic event in their lives. And they were, and plus the, the brother and other family members, and their recollections were entirely incompatible. There was no way that those four people's stories could be reconciled. Some people's memories were wrong. Which I suppose in a way this should point to the fact that a lot of other aspects of our criminal justice system rely on very imperfect information. And right now I'm thinking of eyewitness testimony. So even if this data, even if this type of technology proves itself to be imperfect, well, join the club because a lot of the other tools we use in in the court are also imperfect. Yeah, exactly. And we have a much better understanding of eyewitness memory from decades of converging scientific research now. And some jurisdictions are now developing procedures and jury instructions for how to handle eyewitness memory and for how to educate the jury about how to analyze, not what weight to give it, but how what factors affect eyewitness memory such that they can have a slightly better, more scientifically informed consideration. And that's, that's a big change. We used to have exclusively expert testimony about whether eyewitness memory was reliable or unreliable and not necessarily as applied to this particular case. And now those that expert testimony is moving into jury instructions. It's moving into law itself, which I see as an extremely positive development. What we don't know is what jurors really do with those instructions, because some survey data that we have, the last survey data I've seen on this question from close to a decade ago now shows that huge swaths of the lay public believe that memory acts like a video recorder and believe that confidence equals accuracy or strongly correlates with accuracy. And if someone says on the stand, I saw him, he did it, it was him, I'm 100% sure, that that is in some cases enough to secure a conviction. I do think what you point to, the, the difference between current science and perhaps common understanding when it comes to memory, there's, there's quite a gap. But why don't we go back to brain-based memory detection? I suppose we're not quite at the level where we have examples from, from court cases, but could you apply what you think would be some of the main issues or some of the main questions that, that a court would look at if they're, if they're using a Daubert Fry test? Well, I think it matters who's who's offering it, right? In terms of the questions that the court, like how how rigorously a court might wish to scrutinize this. If it's being offered by the prosecution in order as corroborative evidence of guilt to say, this defendant has a unique recognition signature. Their brain recognizes the Paisley pattern on the couch where the victim was found. 
And the only way they would know that would be if they were there at the crime scene. Exactly. Exactly. It's a couch that has, there were only a hundred made in the world and they are arguing that this alleged recognition memory of experience is akin to guilt or to place the murderer at the scene of the crime. Well, if that's being offered by the prosecution, first of all, we go, the judge would want to go through the Daubert standard and say, is this memory detection technique well understood? Is it something that is peer reviewed and tested? And there, there would be some support. There is a growing body of fMRI-based memory detection evidence that uses real-world experience that where, for example, subjects or volunteers wear a camera around their body and walk around for three weeks with it randomly taking pictures and then are asked to later on discriminate between photos that show scenes from their own life, totally mundane scenes that they may never have paid attention to, right? So they're maybe very weakly in what we call encoded versus scenes from someone else's life. And so a recognition memory and those dis answers are sometimes right and sometimes wrong. The researchers know which ones are right and wrong. So they can figure out the false positive rate. They can figure out the error rate of people's subjective experience. But then the fMRI data during this task of exposure to pictures from your own life or pictures from someone else can be used to train a machine learning algorithm that can, with a fairly high degree of accuracy, distinguish between brain states. Interesting. So there is, in certain conditions at least, there's some real scientific evidence backing at least the, the theory behind this technology. And the practice behind this technology. But the important thing of what you said is under certain conditions, right? Under those conditions, the researchers know what the ground truth really is. They know where that person has been because that volunteer wore a camera for three weeks. And they can check the footage, right? And they, they know that this camera was assigned to this subject. There's just no question about what the ground truth really is. What we're learning from that, though, is that from those studies, and I think this goes back to the memory point, uh, what we've learned from some of those studies is that people get it wrong, right? Sometimes they say, no, that wasn't my life. Maybe it's a picture in a parking garage, something that they would not have any reason to remember. It's not salient. And it actually was. Or they may identify a, a picture as from someone else's life as from their own life. So they make subjective errors, right? We know the objective status. The brain imaging algorithms, the algorithms that analyze the brain imaging data, are shockingly, like stunningly good at detecting objectively correct memory status, but are not good if the subject, if the person themselves believes that they have this memory when they actually don't. Oh, interesting. Yes, they're not good at detecting- False positives in a way? Yeah, subjectively believed, but objectively incorrect memory for that. So here, if we had the case of a witness who says, I saw Emily leaving the drugstore. I know it was her. I know exactly what she was wearing. Let's imagine a scenario where that memory is incorrect. This test may not be helpful at all. Correct. Yes, I think that that is right. And so a couple of things come into play there, right? In terms of evaluating this under the Daubert standard. 
the technique and methodology and software may be all kind of validated through peer-reviewed studies. We know the error rates in controlled laboratory settings. In real world settings where the ground truth is not known. Now, if you have surveillance video showing that it's not Emily coming out of the store, then, you know, we have what your evidence is, is of subjective belief of the witness. The witness could be entirely truthful and yet mistaken. Is this why you talk about it in your research as a distinction or why some describe it as a distinction between memory detection and truth detection or some type of veracity test? That's exactly right. That's exactly right. You could have witnesses who are being entirely truthful. They're not trying to deceive. They are not lying, but they may have an incorrect memory. And I argue, along with my co-author in our recent paper about this, that while proponents of memory detection for forensic purposes have said, well, this is not lie detection, which has been rejected by the courts, including with brain imaging technology, because we're not, it doesn't matter if someone is trying to deceive, we're not asking for any kind of response. But ultimately, if what the court cares about, and sometimes what the court cares about is whether the witness is subjectively deceiving, right? But if what the court, what the fact in dispute really is, is the underlying truth of what happened, then you can have a witness who is 100% believes they're telling the truth, who is also 100% mistaken. And to me, I think that means that lie detection and memory detection, in many cases where what we're trying to figure out is the facts of the world, merge and are kind of equally unreliable. It's not that we're going to find a video trace of the real world somewhere in someone's brain. You make a good point that, you know, similar to a lie detector test, if the person believes it, then it's going to, you know, it's going to show up as truthful and that may not be helpful. I mean, there you're not actually seeing the truth. Yeah. If what you're interested in is this witness's sincerity, then it is useful, right? But what our system leaves the determination of witness sincerity squarely as a question for the jury. That's one of the reasons why lie detectors have been not looked favorably upon by all kinds of jurisdictions. Because, I mean, that, that's where it, when it showed up in the Supreme Court, Justice Thomas wrote, this is, this is a question for the jury. The sincerity of the witness is one of the four testimonial capacities. This is why we have a jury system in the first place. You know, there are technological and scientific questions about whether these things are reliable, but even if they were perfect, there's still that question of whether or not this is something we want a machine to do or whether this is something we want fellow citizens to do. And neither are perfect. I don't think so. And they come with trade-offs. And I would be concerned about a future where forensic evidence moved to the direction of trying to peer into people's brains because while the technology is getting better and better and doing amazing things and teaching us incredible things about the neural mechanisms of memory, what we are starting to do is get so good at understanding that, that we're running up against biological limitations. Now, if we run up against biological limitations that we are not perfect mnemonics, we don't remember everything with perfect accuracy. Everybody remembers things differently based on perception and attention and what we encode and what we 
think about and what we ruminate on, memory is dynamic and it has to be for us to function in the world. But if we try to make it essentialized that somewhere in the brain exists the truth, I worry we start to obscure other values of the judicial system and the jury system, especially if that is something we're committed to, I think we need to accept the flaws of the jury system for what they are and say, you know, they are not overcome because humans are inherently biologically limited from being perfect recorders of the world. Yeah, I don't see us replacing juries with AI, for example, anytime soon, but some people who think that might be a better system. If you can trust the AI. You could trust if you could design AI without the human biases, query whether that can could ever possibly be done by humans, right? There's an extensive literature on this. But even if we could, is that the system we would want? It's certainly scarier to the individual because it's this black box. At the same time, the jury is the black box, right? Like we are not allowed to open the black box of jury deliberations. Federal rules of evidence protect against this and state rules do too, with some very narrow exceptions to do specifically with bringing forth bias. But we don't ask a jury to explain their verdict. And there's a there's reasons for that. There's reasons, but I'm sure as a neuroscientist, you you wish you could in some cases, you know, check the tires on on how these decisions are coming out. Yes, and the, some of the best jury project research has started ha, was able to unpack and do that. But we don't do that as a matter of course in most criminal justice proceedings for values of finality, for values of getting you know this is what the jury says and. This is there, and therefore, because it's what the jury says, it is legitimate. It's a mess to find facts, right? And by keeping it neatly enclosed in a jury black box. So the question I think is one of weighing it against two black boxes, the jury black box of your peers or the black box of a allegedly perfect AI system. Is there something intangibly important into the dignity of the jury system of the criminal justice system to be judged by a jury. Why don't we imagine this world that you described where this technology is better? You know, I, I'm going to make an analogy to driving your car versus driverless cars. Let's say we're in a world where the driverless cars are objectively much safer or where this technology is objectively effective. What are some of the constitutional issues that it would raise in terms of using it by the prosecution, in terms of compelling it? These are questions that start to, are starting to fall under the rubric of what people are calling cognitive liberty. Um, it raises questions of Fourth Amendment search and seizure. Does the Fourth Amendment right to be secure in our papers, houses, and effects extend to the right to have our skulls remain private? Right, The interior unexpressed thoughts. It butts up against the Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination which you know, we are not compelled to testify against our own interests, our unexpressed thoughts or automatic thoughts detected by brain imaging technology with no outward testimonial sign, are they testimonial for purposes of the Fifth Amendment? Nita Farahani has written extensively about both of those questions, and I think they are entirely untested and unresolved. She's come up with some spectrums and ways of thinking about them, but we don't really know. 
the Sixth Amendment right to have your case decided by a jury goes to our question about which black box you would prefer. Knowing that a jury is flawed, do you nevertheless have some sort of dignitary right to be decided by a, a group of flawed people? But I think the Fourth and Fifth Amendment rights about whether we have particular rights to cognitive liberty, if in the hypothetical situation, brain imaging technology could extract the truth, the truth as it was undisputed and important to what happened. I don't know how that would come out. I wonder. It seems like the Fifth Amendment right to not incriminate would at least be triggered. If you were the, if you were the, I suppose, the suspect or the target of an investigation, there I think it jumps out to me without having done much research that you might be able to claim that right. Yes, although in the Supreme Court case of Schmerber, where your blood alcohol content is not considered testimonial evidence, and such that your Fifth Amendment right against testifying against yourself is not triggered by a compelled blood draw in order to preserve evidence of your blood alcohol content. So are our thoughts covered by the Fifth Amendment? I mean, that it seems to be much closer, right? Because it's testimonial, things we say or write or express. They seems much, much, much closer to our thoughts and not our blood alcohol content. But blood alcohol content can be incredibly incriminating, right? That could be the slam dunk case for a DUI. So where does that line of bodily integrity and cognitive liberty lie, especially in the face of public safety? This has come up as hypotheticals in cases of terrorism, right? Or the, the ticking bomb where we have a certain amount of time in order to prevent a mass tragedy. Do we then, does the government then have a overwhelming interest in invading the mental privacy of someone who has said, I'm not saying anything? Interesting. So you're envisioning a situation where, where perhaps, you know, it's not for proving guilt or innocence, but, you know, if we could use that, this technology to know which train car has the dangerous substance and you could just show the images and, and detect it in the brain, does the government have the power to force that? Yeah. I mean, right now, these questions are still hypothetical and they may remain so for some time, but I would not be surprised at some point to see this type of question being brought forth to a court. And I don't know what the answer is. Okay, quick break for the MCLE code. The code for this interview is 61115. That's 61115. And now back to the interview. Professor, one thing that we should probably touch on is the impact of this type of technology, if it's used on the jury. What do you envision, and I suppose by analogy, since we haven't seen it in U.S. courts, you know, what type of risks does it present? The impact of what brain imaging technology might do to a jury is, in, in some sense, it's an empirical question, right? Like, it's something that we should be able to answer with research subjects, give them brain images and ev based evidence and say, what happens? Well, there's been a number of studies trying to do that. I've been part involved in some of those. And the evidence is frankly all over the place. We're not getting a clear picture that this is always unduly persuasive and always sways the juries. 
or sometimes we're getting evidence that it has no effect at all, especially compared to uh, clinical psychiatric evidence about, say, someone's mental state. The evidence is, is all over the place. The initial concern was that brain images would be so persuasive to jurors because it's I'm looking into their brain. The brain is lighting up. This is science or magic, right? And that it would be unduly persuasive. And, you know, when I first wrote about this topic with my co-author, Tennille Brown, in 2010, we thought this is concerning enough that it might actually be, there might be an argument to exclude such evidence, even if it were reliable and relevant under Rule 403, which kind of weighs the evidence's relevance against its what's called unduly prejudicial impact. And if empirical evidence were showing us that jurors automatically believed anything if you slapped a brain picture on it, no matter how unreliable it was or how far-fetched the claims, then I think there would be strong 403 arguments. But it's not clear because sometimes jurors seem to trust experts in brain imaging evidence, and sometimes they seem to mistrust it. I think the clearest evidence, I said jurors, I think I mean the general public. I think what we're starting to see emerge from the behavioral research on how brain images affect people is that like many other forms of scientific evidence or technology, people integrate that information into prior beliefs and engage in motivated reasoning reaching a conclusion they might have been predisposed to reach anyway because it accords with a prior belief set. So I am not sure. I do worry that the ambiguity and especially the way this would actually play out in a courtroom is, you know, especially in a criminal case, but also in a lot of civil cases, the different sides are differently matched. And the side who can find the gray-haired expert who can stroke his beard and show fancy brain pictures that can like rotate a 3D brain is a form of zealous advocacy that appeals to jurors. I mean, I have been consulted and then turned down for expert work. Your hair's not gray enough. Because I'm a young woman, because I don't have sufficient gravitas. And look, as a former litigator, I get it. Like, it's annoying. But I get it. On behalf of your client, you need to procure the expert who is most going to convince the jury. You're alluding to some of the more performative aspects of our of our judicial system. You know, we've talked to lawyers who, when trying a case in Texas or in Georgia, will will really lean into their accent, even if in a regular day to day they don't. Jury trials are theater to some extent, right? We, especially high profile trials, just as we've seen and are seeing right now as we record this. So. That is something that savvy trial lawyers know and take into account. Now, and there's, but there's going to be differently resourced sides, and there's going to be judges who have different degrees of comfort with interrogating the experts and interrogating the technology. What impact this has on the jurors may depend on the jurors' comfort with scientific information. Some people are maybe more inclined to trust it. Some people may be inclined to distrust it. These are very idiosyncratic decisions. I don't think we have a clear picture of how it shakes out. I do think that right now, claims that are made by folks who are selling this software are overblown relative to what the software can do and therefore risk being unduly prejudicial because of overclaiming. Well, I mean, it's quite a dream. If you could just ask the defendant, did you do this or were you there? Did you 
kill this person or did you run this traffic light? And that's enough to get to the truth. Wow, that would really simplify criminal cases. That raises the question of whether we would get to a jury at all, right? I mean, 95% of criminal cases are resolved through plea agreements at this point. Maybe it's irrelevant whether this information would get to, whether it would unduly influence a jury because it's going to, as we discussed a little bit in a different segment, it's going to coerce someone to tell the truth or to agree to a plea deal because they think the technology the is, is more powerful than right. it is. Mm-hmm. Well, I suppose before we let you go, are there any parting words you'd like to leave us with when it comes to this technology or when it comes to the legal application of it? Extremely cautious optimism for the future. Not right now. I do not think that brain imaging techniques of trying to get at people's memories, certainly not to past mental states, is ready for primetime use. The technology is amazing for research applications. We are learning so much that's important about how memory actually works. But I don't think we should look to technology to solve problems that may be inherent limitations of just being human. Emily Murphy, thank you for taking the time to join us today. Joel, it's been a pleasure. Thanks so much for the interest and the exciting conversation. I very much enjoyed it. And thank you for watching Talks on Law. For more legal explainers and interviews with the titans of law, visit TalksOnLaw.com. If you're earning MCLE for this interview, you can enter your confirmation code at TalksOnLaw.com slash MCLE podcast to get your certificate. Join us again soon for more cutting-edge interviews on the California MCLE podcast.